don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, before the drone, genealogy of aerial imagery and its militarization with Karen Kaplan. Hello everyone, today my guest is Karen Kaplan, who is a professor in American Studies at the University of California in Davis, and uh, who is also affiliated there with the Science and Technology Studies, as well as the Cultural Studies, and uh, we are recording this conversation from Vancouver, where uh, we were both participating to a great workshop uh, organized by a, f- a friend, uh, Gaston Gordillo. Um, hello, Karen. Hello, Leopold. Uh, so we eventually get to do this <laughs> conversation. It's, At long last. Yeah. So, but you know, everything comes uh, to everything comes in the right time for people who can who have the patience to wait. So, uh, uh, so I'm I'm very glad that we we can do that. Uh, so today we will talk about. We will we will um, s- uh, navigate through uh, your future book. Uh, that's about. Uh, uh, I mean, you'll tell us more about it. But uh, uh, what we like view, views from above, the militarizations of views from above, and I mean, uh, you'll you will obviously go much more into details than that. Uh, uh, but maybe to begin the conversation, um, could you tell us a little bit about those fascinating classes you're giving at UC Davis? Because I've, I've heard about, I've heard about them, and uh, and uh, I, th- I think it'd be it'd be great to to give a sort of uh, a, a little glimpse at, at what what it could look like. I think you you have at least two of them, right, about uh, war, art, and uh, objects. Yeah, and and actually perhaps most relevant for our conversation is a class I teach um, on bird's eye views and uh, maps and atlases uh, mm. for American studies for very, very uh, first year and second year students, quite young, uh, just out of high school. So the idea is to, um, in some ways similar to the objects class, to take something similar and to something familiar uh, and to look at it in a new way. So people use maps on their phones all the time. So I ask them to really think back, uh, move back and understand how maps have come about and the different kinds of points of view that maps enable, but also the points of view that are lost when you use maps mm-hmm. um, in the European tradition, so coming from the European tradition. So uh, so that's a really great class. Uh, and we start uh, at the moment of contact um, between Europeans and indigenous people and uh, the landmass that's now known as the United States and um, move to the present. Um, so in 10 weeks so but it, it's fun uh, and their last uh, project is to create their own map and I give them a lot of latitude and uh, people have crocheted map pillows um, uh, designating particular kinds of places on them they've made uh, they've used GIS and created really elaborate computerized um, navigational sites they've done all kinds of things uh, so I think it's a good class. <laughs> I like that one. 
And could you tell us as well about the others? Because sure. I think they're equally fascinating. Yeah, so I also teach an, a class um, uh, on everyday objects for American studies that I inherited from my colleague Carolyn Thomas, who uh, invented it. Um, and I took it as a real challenge because I had just moved into the American Studies program uh, from um, Women and Gender Studies. And because I'm connected to science and technology studies, and there's been such an ontological turn, I wanted to take this opportunity to explore that material and try and convey it to, again, first and second year, lower division university students who are, most of whom are taking these classes to fulfill a requirement. They have no real intrinsic interest in anything <laughs> so that I'm teaching. So, uh, so in teaching the objects class, uh, again, over 10 weeks, I chose 18 objects and researched them uh, and um, uh, had to create lectures for each one. So it was an intensive uh, research project for me to do the design the class. And I've been refining it and changing some objects now and then. Uh, so we have um, hard objects and soft objects, things like aluminum lawn chairs, um, codfish, braziers, um, Winchester rifles, um, the short-handled hoe, um, cars and roadmaps, um, what else, lipstick, um, uh, many things, <laughs> many things, apples, um, bu flower bouquets. And it turns out that the class is really about mass production. Because I realized if I was talking about objects, even things, even something like a bouquet of flowers um, reaches most of us through um, an industrialized circuit, you know. So the class becomes a way to learn about globalization and different eras and um, the movement of things. And so my lecture on Barbie has changed. When I was in women and gender studies, the lecture on Barbie was on women's appearance and commodification, of course. And then we would also talk about um, the racial, racialized, um, you know, racialized um, toys that Mattel uh, would produce to try to address multiculturalism in a really inadequate way. Mm -hmm. But in this class, I teach... Uh, Barbie as a way to talk about container ships uh, and a way to talk about um, uh, neoliberal uh, um, forms of production, distribution, and consumption, which startles the students somewhat, but um, it, I get very excited by that. So, you know, because Barbie's made of different parts from all over the world oil from Saudi Arabia, you know, it goes into the plastic. It's She's a real, really uh, is a transnational object par excellence. So, uh, and Mattel um, has never produced the doll in the United States ever. So, and um, Mattel as a company invented Barbie and really came to power as a company at the same moment that container shipping, mm -hmm. you know, really. In the 70s? Um, actually, late 50s. The late 50s. Late 50s. Um, very late 50s for both. Um, and so it really works. So so that's that class. And I, I, I've learned a lot from having to uh, write these lectures and mm -hmm. find out more about objects that I thought were familiar to me but actually became quite unfamiliar as I worked on them and then re-familiarized re myself in this new way. So 
Uh, that's a great class. And then uh, I teach a war arts class that I do in different ways. Um, I had taught it as um, more of an art history class focusing on painting as well as photography. And that just was not suitable for the kinds of students and I have in American studies. They were so unprepared to think about 18th or 19th century anything. Um, the European art, forget it. And it was so alien to them. So I've kind of put that version of the class aside, and now now I'm teaching it um, uh, around um, war correspondence and um, uh, war conflict uh, photographers um, from uh, the Spanish Civil War to the present. And um, because reporters are now really in peril, they've been abandoned by their news organizations, through budget cuts and so many of them are freelance and they don't have a lot of protections more and more of them are casualties in conflict areas now so there have been some sensational stories about that so I use that to catch the students attention and convince them that it's worthwhile going going into history to understand how this figure and this kind of job this sort of labor has um, in the world of representation has come about um, and um, there's lots of material to choose from. So that's how I'm teaching the class right now. <laughs> uh, so today we will talk about this, um, this forthcoming book that you've been writing for a little while. Uh, there's no title for the moment, so we'll just yes, say the, the book. The untitled book. <laughs> the untitled book. The, the book. Not uh, a good sign. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know about that. but um, And um, I think that so far the first chapter is the one about the balloon. Is that, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So maybe yeah. we could we could start by that. Um, this sure. this uh, militarization of uh, of uh, brand new technology to, uh, as you as as you said uh, the other day, to defy gravity uh, uh, in a and later in a context of in a context of wartime. Uh, could you could you could you explain to us? Maybe also why that would be the your entrance door to, to this topic of bird eye view and, and sure, um, you know when I began I um, I was really interested in um, the first Persian Gulf War, which I'm old enough to have been you know an adult when I have young adult when it uh, took place, and um, uh, a lot of people have written about the imagery produced by laser-guided um, bombs. And I thought that that information was, that that discussion was valuable and important. But it seemed to me that there were a lot of other things going on that I didn't fully understand. Um, so uh, I began to research the global positioning system, which is the system that directed um, those um forms of uh, those that weaponry for the first time because it was the first war in which um, that satellite technology was available to use uh, and tumbled into what I'm doing now I mean it's been a long time and I've learned a lot along the way and I did quite a bit of work on the global positioning system for a while um, but because I'm so I, because I really also locate myself in visual culture studies, I was interested in the in, in the increasing what seemed to be an increasing reliance on visuality in um, the what got called the revolution in military affairs, the shift to uh, more digital um, forms of communications, 
um, and operations of all kinds in the military. So, and because the United States was engaged in so much um, uh, combat um, uh, and um, uh, expanding its empire during the time period in which I became interested in this, uh, there was a lot to look at. And what I found was that so many people would make a, a kind of cursory or throwaway reference to since since mankind, you know, first climbed into a balloon and looked over its edge, they've been uh, convinced that the view from above is the best way to see all, and then moved directly to a discussion of digital technologies. Or since Felix Nadar climbed into a balloon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I thought, huh, balloons... I guess I should find out a little more about that. When was the first image produced from a from a balloon? And I didn't know. Uh, and people sometimes refer to the first images produced by balloons and say that the the person who uh, the, almost nothing was known about this guy Thomas Baldwin. So I was curious, and I thought maybe it would just be like the front part of a chapter or something like that. So I started to research it, and then. Quite a few years later, it became a really, really long chapter that was just about balloons. <laughs> That's what happened. And it happened because as I read the materials from the late 18th century and early 19th century, as people first, the first people who got into balloons and lifted off, the first Europeans and some North Americans, um, what they wrote about was not a narrative of mastery. Uh, and a co- They didn't have a clear view and could see all and felt that they could control the scene. What they recorded was confusion, um, exhilaration. Um, They were trying to put the scene together. They couldn't see. They couldn't see. That wasn't what I expected. So I became really intrigued by that. So I wanted to learn more. Uh, So uh, that also brought me to the panoramic paintings um, chapter, which is the second chapter. But the first chapter, I realized, was about assembling a view and training the eye to um, develop a, a, a comprehensible or legible impression, a perception uh, of what one can see. They saw colors differently. Of, of course, all the senses were altered. Sound was altered. Um, the sense of they didn't feel that they were moving um, they felt they were staying still, and yet they were moving. This was really disturbing and also wonderful. The main thing I took away from most of the uh, written accounts of ballooning uh, was that people felt joy. So here I was, writing a book about the militarization of aerial views, encountering materials that were recording exhilaration and joy. And that made me realize that I needed to look into affect, um, uh, so that also um, kind of derailed me for a while. I mean, balloons really changed everything for me and changed the book and um, slowed me down in probably good ways. Mm-hmm. I, I hope good ways. Um, uh, and I'm still figuring out what I think about it. But at least at this point, um, I think that what I want to emphasize through this first chapter is that um, these kinds of uh, modes of sight are not automatic or natural. Um, they're always already composed um, and are um, the product of effort. Mm-hmm. But it's also sometimes a, um, a um, uplifting effort. 
so, and I think that that's also often associated with flight. So when you conduct war from the air, you're um, working with a lot of different feelings um, at uh, moving at, sometimes at cross purposes, fear, uh, elation, um, and then a certain kind of technical precision. Um, because this is also what the balloonists found. I, what I found out about balloonists is that while they're having all this joy and uplift and amazement, they also had to be very careful about flying the balloon or they would die. So, And they had also brought a lot of um, usually meteorological experiments um, with them. So they had flasks and stoppers and notebooks and they were noting things constantly. They were usually scientists, so chemists, um, so uh, they're very busy um, being scientists while they're also having this extraordinary, overwhelming experience and thinking, huh, I wonder if we could move troops in a balloon or, hmm, I wonder if I could see enemy installations. All these things happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I, I, I knew that we were going to talk about <clears throat> training the eye in, in looking at um, things that are not uh, very, um, uh, I don't know if it's a, that's the right word, but not very natural. Uh, like looking at a map. I mean, a map is not a a map is not a, a real. It's a representation, but it's not. It does not correspond to the same codes of vision that we usually have, or even um, uh, aer- aerial photography is also a very strange thing to. I mean, in, it really needs a sort of training to to get used to it. But it I, I was not expecting that that actually seeing from their own eyes from a balloon would also require a form of a form of training as well into a kind of brand new brand new means of vision that it would imply exactly i didn't expect that either so uh that was the sort of the fun of it and it um i i had a hard time um i had a hard time uh I think it caused me to write differently because their joy and uncertainty and the ambiguity of what they were seeing um, caused me to step back and let the material breathe, if you will, instead of inflicting my point of view on the material quite as much as I had perhaps originally intended. Mm-hmm. So um, um, so I'm kind of grateful for that, uh, although it was a fairly, it's with a big detour to do this. And then there I am in the late 18th century, which I don't know that much about. I had to really do a lot of background, um, you know, research um, to make sure I wasn't uh, blundering around too much. Um, But I was excited by what I was learning. And one of the things that I was learning was that people who, um, the first uh, painters of panoramic paintings, these 360-degree immersive environments that were a form of very popular entertainment in big metropolitan centers in Europe and in some big U.S. cities uh, in the very late 18th and early 19th century, uh, that they uh, very directly drew on the metaphor and the interest, metaphor of ballooning and the the interest of the population, because people were crazy about balloons. Uh, they they put balloons on their you know plates and teapots. They wore balloons, little balloons in their hair. They 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 made balloon styled skirts, and there was this balloonomania that accompanied the people's excitement and interest in the new science of aerostation. So um, it was very much on everybody's mind uh, uh, and. Um, 
the painters kind of tried to capture the moment when the balloon lifts and you have an oblique angled view on your surroundings. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sort of like a photograph. It would be fro that frozen instant. And the first um, painter of panoramic paintings, Robert Barker, actually referred to it as a coup d'oeil um, before he called it a panorama. The idea was in a blink, this is the blink of the eye at this moment. But it's very much the lift off of the balloon. Uh, and they talk about it quite overtly. So I was intrigued by that and I started looking at panoramic paintings and I found that not only were they, you know, just very closely associated with ballooning, but um, many scenes were also of battles. So that started to interest me. I thought maybe the military observation that was so um, incompletely accomplished by the balloon could uh, be realized in some way in these panoramic installations. And I should just say that uh, lots of people who first um, tried ballooning thought that it could be used for uh, to wage war. But, um, and I've written a, a piece about this, uh, they, they, just, they just couldn't manage it. Um, uh, you needed a fuel source close to the battle. They invented a way to get hydrogen produced closer to battles, but it still wasn't very practical. Um, the balloon had to be dragged, had to be tethered. Um, if there was any wind, a tethered balloon really bounces around. I mean, there were all kinds of reasons. And then you're a sitting duck if somebody wants to shoot at you. Um, um, could quite be managed in the late 18th century, but pretty soon it could be. And so you were really very vulnerable in that kind of an observation post. So, so it was a good idea, but they couldn't quite realize it. So it was abandoned. They tried it again in the Civil War. didn't really quite take. Uh, so... Um, Balloons are very heavily involved in um, ideas about and strategies about military observation, but not really fully utilized. So I thought maybe the panoramic painting was an expression of this wish for um, an elevated, perfect elevated view. Um, so I started to look into panoramic paintings. And Robert Barker, um, who invented the panoramic painting, apparently, although there's some conflicting claims, uh, was an Irish guy who uh, was a painter. He was a miniature painter. And he um, was living in Scotland for quite a long time. He was married to somebody who was Scottish. And so his first painting is a panoramic, partial panorama of Edinburgh. Uh, and people were very excited by it. And he was able to raise enough money to take that prototype to London, which was his aim, really, as an artist, I think, to get to London. Uh, and uh, he did another version, a fuller version, uh, of the Edinburgh panorama. And that was enough of a success that he could start to build the kind of building that he wanted, which was a um, circular structure of several stories with a lighting, very ingenious lighting from above, that would create an immersive experience for the spectator. Um, and uh, he was successful in this effort, and he created a large panorama of London. Um, that was a huge, spectacular success. But it was very controversial. Real artists real artists, felt that it was just popular entertainment, just designed to give people thrills, uh, and uh, they scorned it, even though in its execution it was quite impressive. Uh, uh, and uh, people like Wordsworth uh, were offended by it and thought it was an affront to nature. Um, panoramas were uh, subject of a lot of debate. Um, but to me, uh, I, they're perfectly round, and I feel that they were an effort to emulate the experience of being in the basket of a balloon and looking over the side 
just at a particular moment that's frozen and it kind of anticipates photography in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's <clears throat> that's the that's the connection there. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose uh, I mean when we talk about bird bird eyes views, uh, the other name we we use sometimes is uh, God God's eyes view, and, yes. and I think the circularity of the of the balloon and of those paintings are very much uh, tending towards this sort of this sort of view where um, uh, the the center the center can technically disappear because of the the, the, the radiali- radiality of uh, pointing towards the center that obviously is God and, and looking down right and it certainly fits with um, a culture that is um, uh, emphasizing more and more individuality and individual perception and individual action um, the subject uh, you know we could just for shorthand, call it the bourgeois subject of the 19th century, you know, is very much hailed, I think, and produced by um, these experiences and techniques and discourses. So uh, so it really does fit. And, you know, I've always been very influenced by Dennis Cosgrove's um, uh, work, the late uh, cultural geographer, um, who uh, has written wonderfully about what he calls the Apollonian vision, which is this God's eye view, and he, in a very erudite manner in his work, traced it from medieval period um, and and even classical period, of course, um, uh, and its influence on the European uh, Renaissance uh, through Europe and elsewhere. Um, And his argument is that this is a a rising discourse of mastery um, using um, through sight. And I was always very convinced by this, um, but as I said, these these materials that I was encountering from the, um, this moment in this transition between the 18th and 19th century suggested to me that it was more messy and uneven than um, the way Dennis would write about it, um, which doesn't mean that Dennis is wrong, but um, but just that I thought maybe there was more to the story. And... Um, a value in the um, in it's in perhaps saying yes, perhaps as a dominant um, approach, which we could call the God's eye view, and perhaps you could say the God's eye view objectifies and leads us inexorably into warfare. But I think that there's just as much evidence that the God's eye view is um, uh, fails, uh, and there are people who don't see that way or can't achieve it immediately, regardless of what technology they're using or how they're working with their eyes. And um, and that needs a more um, storytelling. That needs more thinking through. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads us to the idea that um, through this view, you can uh, implement a sort of... Uh, um, militarized or state state uh, uh, will to control whatever it is that you're that you're seeing right and um, and um, in this regard you you have this uh, these two chapters I think about about the uh, this uh, this survey of, of Scotland after the conflict with the with the Scottish uh, Jacobites uh, um, uh, so order ordered by the by uh, by the King of England, I think, or yes, or, yeah, 
and uh, and uh, those those map paintings uh, that were that were ordered to survey this territory and to to control this territory and to avoid the kind of uh, massive insurrection that that uh, Scotland has been uh, experiencing, and um, and here again you go back to this idea of, of, of this concept that you already evoked briefly of uh, the coup d'oeil, and uh, I was wondering if you could explain that uh, uh, to what what does it correspond and how does it fit within within this work? I I will try to explain it. I'm still figuring it out, as you know. Um, yeah, it's actually, I think, I pray it's one chapter um, that I will finish soon. Um, I found that um, that in between, I thought I was moving directly to photography from panoramic paintings, but there is a missing piece, and the missing piece is the uh, emergence of cartography, especially military ordnance surveys. Uh, and here I'm talking, I'm, I'm staying... In Britain, because um, it's a complicated tale. Uh, if you move farther away, there's just so much I can do at this point. Although I'm interested in, especially in uh, cartog- French cartography in this period, but I'm writing about um, the Ordnance Board of Ordnance, um, which is a British um, institution uh, that's not quite military and not quite not military. That um, has been around since the Middle Ages. Uh, that was put in charge of artillery and um, um, and eventually cartography, engineering, it, it, artillery and engineering, um, to train um, military uh, personnel. It's interesting how both yeah. goes together, by the way, because there's a, a matter of like artillery, of ballistic, of how, where is it that the, the, the exactly, and that's how these people became the map makers. Mm-hmm. Um, because navigation, um, placement of artillery, um, reconnaissance, uh, all really applies to the effective accomplishment of uh, the aims of artillery and the engineering that goes to support the um, logistics and the operations of combat itself. So uh, as soon as I, I, I didn't really know much about the Board of Ordnance, but I became quite fascinated uh, once I uh, learned about it. Uh, and I realized that a lot of the maps that people use every day for hiking or driving around uh, are um, actually ordnance survey maps made, now made available to the public. So like GPS, it's very much a dual-use kind of thing. It has a military um, point of origin, but has uh, also perhaps almost always also been imagined as something that the public uses at the same time. Um, and this struck a chord in me based on my GPS um, research. So uh, I rather self-destructively decided I needed to write a chapter about ordnance surveys um, and learned that they began in the middle of the 18th century when um, the uh, Hanoverian uh, troops put down a rebellion by Jacobite um, forces in um, Scotland. Something else I didn't know much about, but I did know a bit about it because Robert Barker, the first uh, panorama painter, uh, was funded by um, uh, Jacobites who had either gone into exile in France uh, or um, were assimilated into London society, but still harboring harboring Scottish nationalist um, feelings and a lot of uh, rancor towards um, uh, 
British mainstream society. Uh, so this was interesting. So uh, an interesting connection. So um, uh, I found myself concentrating on uh, the period of uh, 1745 to um, around the middle of the 1750s when the first military survey ended, um, looking at uh, the arguments for this kind of a map, which had never really been attempted before, to use triangulation of the type that had been first innovated in France, um, uh, trigonometric uh, triangulation, um, and uh, producing a map to scale, precisely to scale, um, not an approximation, something scientific. Um, and the first surveyor who went, William Roy, went by himself for almost two years and then was joined by um, several um, soldiers, another draftsman, uh, and um, the artist Paul Sanby, who was very young, who was sent as a, the official draftsman for the survey. Paul Sanby later became uh, known as the father of English watercolor, so he was actually quite a gifted artist, and he did a lot of the artwork um, um, because the survey map is drawn and painted. Uh, and I was really interested, as you noted, in the aesthetic elements of this production. Um, um, first, they had to walk every mile that they were mapping. Um, they used a theodolite and some chains. Um, sometimes they uh, measured by sight when something was just too difficult. They just absolutely couldn't walk it. Um, and those are kind of approximations. But they did the best they could to actually um, do it as faithfully, um, scientifically as possible. Uh, and they were particularly interested in mapping the Scottish Highlands because that was the kind of terrain that the um, uprising uh, had, uh, uh, where the uprising had been most successful because um, the um, local people um, knew the terrain and the British soldiers didn't. And in fact, the British soldiers were frightened of the terrain. They were afraid of very high mountains. Um, they had been brought up in a culture that um, viewed mountains as almost feminine, as um, um, wasteland areas um, of that would fill them with disgust and some apprehension. Uh, so um, this entire terrain was not only dangerous because they could get killed, but dangerous for them psychologically, if you will. So, um, so the Highlanders really had an advantage. So to the... Um, in the aftermath the, um, of this rebellion, which was very brutally suppressed, viciously, brutally, horribly suppressed, um, uh, the British decided they were fed up and they weren't going to put up with anything like this anymore. And they, uh, there were people who argued that you could use this new sciences to um, create a topographical uh, uh, representation so that the British would always know where they were going and they would always be able to suppress a rebellion in the region. So that was their task. Um, and it is a bird's eye view, if you will. It's, it's, it's a map that's uh, a vertical perspective. It's planimetric. Uh, and um, it's the model for um, the official ordnance surveys that followed several decades later. The same guy, William Roy, um, advocated for for this kind of project, and eventually they mapped the, all of the British Isles, and then they moved elsewhere, like India. Um, there was an ordnance survey of Ireland, of course, um, which was used to uh, control populations there. 
uh, and uh, pretty much anywhere in the world now there's this kind of a map and it started in the first military survey so I find that the first three chapters of my book are these firsts uh, first balloon prints uh, of views from above first uh, panoramic uh, paintings and first military survey hmm. and so Oh yeah, and uh, so the kudai and this uh, uh, this effect uh, yeah. contained within the, the map. Uh, yeah. So okay, so the, <laughs> the idea of the kudoi is that I was I was thinking that in the same time period, military uh, there was a, uh, there was a revolution in military affairs during this time, um, the leading up to the Napoleonic Wars. And the term kudoi is usually associated with Napoleon, who comes later, of course, uh, than this, when this mapping is happening. Um, and Napoleon uh, drew on the concept of the kudoi to explain his own prodigious intuitive powers, <laughs> um, uh, who was not a, a shy or modest man. Um, uh, uh, but he, um, uh, it's Clausewitz who... Um, uh, who uh, explains that uh, Napoleon's part of Le Napoleon's genius lay in his ability to um, look at the terrain and um, make a decision quickly uh, before waiting for all the scouts to come back. And so these wars were moving more quickly. People were on horses now, and um, more soldiers were on horses. The battlefield was changing. Um, the commander wasn't in front. Uh, anymore, the commander was now back in an elevated position. Um, it was a complete shift in the operation of uh, battlefield op um, um, tactics. Uh, so, uh, along with this, uh, they would send reconnaissance scouts out on horseback, usually, um, to gather intelligence, but uh, sometimes it would take them too long to get back. And decisions would have to be made, and you could see there, of course, the direct line from this to the moment now drone uh, strikes, where we have chain of command and decisions having to be made rapidly, and all that kind of thing. Uh, but at that moment, this was a huge shift. So um, the commanders uh, that were most valued were those who could not have to laboriously move through all the intelligence reports and take their time and then come to some sort of very learned decision. The valued commanders became those who could stand on an elevated, uh, in an elevated position, survey the scene, and decide, make a decision, mm -hmm. and follow through. And this was referred to as kudoi. So um, I was thinking that from what I was reading, the term was already uh, in use in the um, earlier in the 18th century. So I was thinking that in some ways what the map, like the military survey, was doing was providing a British commander potentially with the same thing. It, it would allow him at a glance to, I mean, you can pour over a map and take a lot of time, but you could also look at the map and say, I'm going to send troops into that valley, or I'm go the troops are going up there, or the fighting we're being shot at from there. I see this on the map, go there. So to me, the, the map was um, giving someone who didn't have this innate intuitive gift the ability to practice kudoi. Mm -hmm. um, in our discussion at our workshop yesterday, Derek Gregory um, very generously and gently uh, disagreed with me and felt that the term doesn't really 
quite work uh, that way. So I have to give it some thought, but I'm still playing around with the idea. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so moving on to back to photography now, where, yeah. where we had uh, started it almost, uh, and this idea of uh, reconnaissance photography, which is already a pretty strange term. I mean, the, the idea of uh, uh, rec- recognizing uh, photography. What is it that yeah. you recognize? Uh, yeah. um, and so I, I guess I don't know at which speed you want to, to, to do that in history, but I, I, think, <laughs> I think it brings us probably yeah. closer to uh, yeah. our own era and the, yes. the various uh, the various uh, military operations uh, that you've that you're cur- uh, looking at a lot I mean uh, uh, a little bit the from the Israeli army but uh, very much from the US military um, could you tell us more about that sure um, I mean reconnaissance photography has a great history it's really you know it's it's very rich and you could say so much about it uh, just itself um, and um, there's a lot of work on this now and more and more since I first started working on this project there was much less and now it seems it's all around me and I'm learning a lot from what other people are doing um, um, reconnaissance photography uh, requires interpretation uh, because it's conducted from a high enough height that unlike the panoramic painting which is uh, captures a moment when the balloon is still, or when the viewer is still quite close to the earth, um, good reconnaissance photography takes place high enough up that um, there's a um, distorting effect of and a, a flattening um, and all kinds of other properties that happen, um, even from an oblique um, aerial image. So um, as the reconnaissance photograph comes into being, it also alongside it uh, emerges a, a cadre of experts who have to be trained to learn how to read the uh, reconnaissance photograph. And that's an interesting story in and of itself. Um, and, of course, it comes alongside um, the emergence of cubism uh, as an art form, which I don't think is completely accidental, and not to be too determinative about this, but um, there are artists who went into uh, action in World War One who were... Um, not cubist <laughs> um, modernist artists and came out cubists uh, and there's some interesting arguments about that that the disorientation um, and fragmentation of bodies and time and um, space um, uh, altered perceptions such that it was difficult for people to do um, classic representational painting after World War One. Uh, so uh, I think that there's a sort of resonance, a kind of a, if it's almost a zeitgeist, if you will, that the reconnaissance photograph is um, uh, kind of uh, echoes and, and resonates in lots of areas of everyday life uh, in the post-war um, uh, period uh, of world, right after World War One, that I find really interesting. And connected with this, of course, is the rise of camouflage, because as soon as you could uh, take photographs uh, from the air, um, effectively, um, people on the ground started to try to figure out how to hide their installations and their movements from um, that seeing eye. So um, um, there's a those all those things are very knitted together, and they produce aesthetics and sort of cultural um, effects that uh, move beyond the battlefields and back in uh, in all kinds of interesting ways that I find quite intriguing mm-hmm. um, to think about. And and the interesting thing about camouflage is that it's it's much less about really hiding than to maybe deceive in the, in the yes. sort of uh, 
uh, interpretations that will be made retrospectively of, of the of the photograph, right? Yes, and deception has a long history in warfare. This was a new installment in uh, the use of deception in, mm. in warfare. That has its own uh, interesting link to uh, emerging ideas about nature, biology, animal life, etc. We could go down a long uh, wormhole uh, uh, talking about that. But um, uh, I think for my purposes for the book, um, um, I'm going to try to, this is a chapter I'm, I need to write soon and quickly, uh, although I've been working on it off and on for years. Um, I think that for my purposes, I'm most interested in the aerial photography that um, is not done in the Western Front, but that is done in the so-called sideshows, um, especially in Mesopotamia. Because for me, that's the through line to the wars in the area now. Uh, and and that's where I began all of this. So, And I found it very frustrating and difficult to research um, World War I aerial photography in just even in Mesopotamia never mind anywhere else, um, North Africa or um, other areas of the Transjordan, say. Um, there's just very little, and the British um, aerial reconnaissance photographs were primarily, were mostly destroyed in a fire in the 20th century, so a lot of them don't even exist. Um, um, and I haven't been able to explore the German archives um, which is too bad um, because I think that there's imagery there um, that remains. But um, but there was a lot of aerial photography in um, Mesopotamia um, in the First World War. Um, the first planes got there um, pretty quickly. Um, it was soon determined that this was the kind of landscape that uh, was conducive to experimenting with aerial photography. Uh, and so it um, uh, was really um, kind of a... Um, people were excited about the potential for both um, um, aerial warfare, for air control, as they called it, the British called it, um, uh, and um, the photographic aspects of that. And there were people, um, specific figures who uh, were interested in, area, in aerial photography because of, they were archaeologists um, before the war. Um, and became prominent archaeologists after the war. So I'm interested in this um, blurry area between World War One and the Mandate period in Mesopotamia and the use of aerial photography to uh, um, develop maps that were used for uh, oil prospecting, for British Petroleum, uh, for uh, rail line, to lay rail lines, etc., to develop um, so-called develop um, the area. It's very similar to what happened in the Scottish Highlands. I mean, following the first military survey, the next thing that happened were many, many roads and more forts and then more towns and then more development. Uh, actual financial investment, it you know changed the area considerably. Uh, and uh, of course, this is what happens uh, when you, after you survey, um, then you cultivate and develop. So um, so, so my World War I aerial reconnaissance uh, photography interest is going to be, uh, I hope, not a rehearsal of a lot, what a lot of other people have done on the, in terms of the Western Front, but um, at least opens up questions for further research for looking at the aerial reconnaissance of the Middle East, specifically Iraq, um, in this uh, time period. Mm -hmm. And then I'm hoping to conclude by um, uh, talking about some of the more... Um, uh, 
recent iterations, but that that work I've been trying to do in articles, and I'm editing a book on um, drones, uh, drone warfare with Lisa Parks, um, uh, and uh, I'm going to address some of the more current uh, issues there. But I think for this book, I'm going to have to leave it uh, before World War II. Um, I didn't start out to be a historian, but this material led me to a more historically based uh, project, and so I'm going to try to then um, observe the bounds of history <laughs> and leave it at a particular moment, I think. Uh, going back to the mandate period and uh, not too far from Mesopotamia, I think uh, that's where we see this uh, this workshop we just participated in yeah. was very well made because uh, E.L. Weisman did a, did a lecture uh, about the Bedouin presence in the in the Negev yes. desert in the south of uh, of uh, Palestine during the the mandate and like taking like RAF uh, RAF um, uh, aerial photography to to sort of uh, 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 use them in a in a way that were not really uh, expected ex- yeah intended for, from them to be but like to to sort of prove a Bedouin presence that that goes back to to uh, many many decades. And there's something interesting that he mentioned, and uh, was the the care we should we should not forget to put in the in the materiality of the photograph itself, like the the object of the photograph itself, and how sometimes what you're trying to see is exactly in, in that case he was speaking about whales uh, because whales have, have such a, a uh, uh, obviously, uh, an anchored presence in the territory, so you, you're able to find them even still today. Uh, but so, how uh, a one one by one matter well would correspond exactly to the size of a of um, uh, I don't know what to call that a, a silver a silver grain uh, on on the film on the film of the of the of the photograph, and how this sort of correspondence to 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 the unit of the object itself, and what is it that is represented. Can be can be very misleading and misleading, and therefore needed some sort of interpretation here again. So, I think maybe is that something you're trying to address as well? The, yes, yeah. I think the um, of course the images that I'm looking at are um, analog uh, photographs, and the more recent um, reconnaissance and surveillance imagery we look at are are, are you know digital. Of course, there's huge differences in mm. the way images work, I mean, the way, the, the materiality um, uh, of the representation. So I am trying to pay attention to that. Um, in, an analog image is full of information. Uh, you can go deeper and deeper into, you can magnify that image yeah. and find more and more information. We can think of Antonioni's blow up uh, exactly. movie, right? That's like Classic. quintessential. Quintessential, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was, yes. Um, uh, and for forensics, which is what IL is doing, um, then an analog photograph can really be very, very helpful. It's still it's still ambiguous. It's still there's still a very unsettled nature to all phot- photography. But the the process of the chemical the chemicals, the emulsions, the paper, uh, and the um, camera, the lens the point of view of the photographer, if you take all of these things into account, there's there's a lot of information there. The digital image um, pixel is is an emptier... You When you magnify the pixel, you just get a blurry effect. I mean, there's it's a, it's a really different um, medium. 
So, uh, so, so I do. I, and actually, I've written about this in the piece I wrote about um, Operation Orchard, um, the 2007 Israeli uh, raid on a purported uh, Syrian uh, nuclear facility, um, and the the um, reconnaissance and surveillance uh, uh, photographs that were released around that event. Um, uh, so I am very interested in that. In 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 this case, since everything is analog um, from the time period I'm looking at, um, I will address that um, their materiality. Um, and I think that one of the things I really want to do is is try to understand the um, how the aerial image is full of information and is not just this cold and clinical. Um, object that it's usually um, described as that's always really seemed wrong to me and as usually when people say that the aerial image is removed and distant um, uh, they do, it's they remove all affect from it uh, except perhaps the affect of bloodthirstiness so like somehow because you're up so high you don't see uh, people's faces um, uh, you, all you can do is easily um, try and uh, bomb people or something like that. Uh, and there is some testimony to that effect from some bombardiers in World War II or other conflicts. But there's also lots of evidence that uh, people who actually do bomb people from the air uh, do have a lot of feelings and don't see feel as far removed as um, some of us might think. So that makes me want to interrogate that oscillation in the image itself, what kinds of responses does this kind of imagery really evoke? Um, for an expert who's looking to see, is that a tank or is that a log, you know, is that a, is that a lake or is it a, you know, is it something else? That's, a, that's one kind of operation in relation to the reconnaissance photograph. But um, I also think that for people who are, who are engaged in warfare, that the aerial image is not devoid of devoid of affect, um, and there are possibilities for uh, connections and other kinds of information embedded in this material object. And it's something I still have to write more about. Um, in some ways, I suppose I've been deferring it by getting lost in the 18th century, uh, late 18th century. Um, but I'm going to try to use what I've learned from that history to help me see the aerial photograph as in a more complex and paradoxical way. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's interesting because I thought I thought we we would uh, we would be talking about those uh, drone strikes and and everything, <laughs> but actually we're I think we're reaching a, a, an interesting uh, a sufficient length of conversation. Sure. And, and I know I know that we will meet again in a few months, so maybe we could have a, this second chapter sure. uh, dedicated to more uh, current. Drone strike, but it's interesting because we, we yeah, as you were pointing out in the beginning, is that we we basically did the pre preliminary work to actually get to that and to get a full understanding of 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 how those um, those kind of uh, uh, attacks are being are being uh, coordinated through this kind of uh, photograph and and live feed of. Uh, uh, so, so this is this concludes the first chapter that 
is necessary to understand the second one somehow. I feel so. Yes, it, you see what happens if you ask me about balloons. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen, to talk to me. Thank uh, you, today. Leopold. <laughs>